This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks out of the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'm the head of Talks and Ideas. And today we conclude our series of live recordings from Antidote Festival, a new festival of art, action and ideas. Janet Mock has described herself as being part of the most woke generation. In this talk, the prominent feminist, writer and transgender rights activist shares her story about using writing to speak her truth. She's joined by Lucky Price, one of Sydney's own transgender advocates. 2014 was the year that Janet released Redefining Realness. It was also the year that I began my transition from a girl named Eliza into the person that stands here today. I was a late bloomer. It took me 33 years to come to terms with my own gender identity and to then actually take action to affirm it. I was terrified, elated, confused and clear. And I had absolutely no idea where to start. Like many, I did not have a lot of trans people in my life and I had no idea how to begin to articulate what I was feeling. So I did what every good millennial does in crisis, I googled. Once I pushed past the salacious, the schlock, the sideshow oddity, I found people sharing intimate stories of their personal journey to truth. Amongst them, I found Janet Mock. In 2011, Janet wrote a coming out article for Marie Claire. It was revealing, brave and powerful. Reading this article gave me confidence that there was life on the other side that if I dared to dream big, that the hurdles before me, which felt, felt absolutely insurmountable, could be traversed. Janet allayed my fear of never being loved when she talked about the love she found with her husband, Aaron. Janet and other advocates like her saved my life. Through their visibility, I found my strength. Janet Mock helped me to redefine my realness, without which I would not be lucky price. A husband to my darling wife, Emma, a father to sweet little Bertie, celebrating my first Father's Day today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm a proud trans man. Ladies, non-binaries and gents, here to share stories of her life, her work and her mission to broaden society's portrait of womanhood, please welcome the antidote, Janet Mock. Thanks, darling. Can I upstage you? Yeah, I'm trying to upstage you. (laughs) So our session is done. Thank you, Lucky. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, What a beautiful introduction. I don't think I could have asked for anything more affirming of my work and my existence. I'm really appreciative of that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all so much for inviting me to be a part of this year's Antidote Festival. It's an honor to share this space with all of you today. As a black and native Hawaiian trans woman, I know our struggle for liberation to be global and deeply connected. And I cannot discuss the oppression of black trans folk without talking about our connections to Aboriginal people here in Australia, Maori folks in New Zealand, native indigenous Americans and my own Kanaka Maoli community in Hawaii. The parallels between indigenous and black folk is obvious to me as someone who comes from both communities. I see clearly how our communities have been displaced, 
how we've navigated social and economic inequalities, policing, surveillance, and mass incarceration, as well as how we've resisted against continual, continual erasure of our history, our traditions, and our contributions. I also know that the struggle for Indigenous people and for Black people must include Indigenous trans people and Black trans people. I am only here because of the work of those who put their bodies on the line to fight for self-determination and the elimination of societal forces that impede on our collective liberation. Our movements, our movements must remove structural inequities that prioritize some bodies, white bodies, cis bodies, able bodies, deeply pocketed bodies over others. There are many ways to go about doing this work, and I do my small part by wielding my pen and my body like a weapon, a weapon against racism, against sexism, transphobia, ableism, and the erasure of indigenous people. I truly believe, I believe that telling our stories, first to ourselves and then to one another, and ultimately to the world, is a revolutionary act. And my activism began with me sitting down at my desk to tell myself my own story. This seems like an incredibly simple task and act, but when you grow up in a culture like I did, that is intent on silencing and erasing, shunning and shaming, marginalizing and exiling, you realize that that act is not so simple. Yet, writing myself onto the page, onto the shelf, and onto this stage is an act I did not do alone. If it weren't for writers like Audre Lorde and Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison and Zorno Hurston, I would not be here. If it weren't for trans activists like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera and Miss Major Griffin Gracie, I would not be here. And if it weren't for my grandmothers, I wouldn't be here. It was around my grandmother Shelley's kitchen table in Dallas, Texas, where I learned about the injustices she faced as a southern black woman who worked as a seamstress to provide for my father and his four siblings. It was around my grandmother Pearl's kitchen table in Honolulu where I learned about the injustices she faced as an indigenous Hawaiian woman who worked at an elementary school to support my mother and her five siblings. Collectively, these women taught me to be a feminist without ever saying the word feminist, These women taught me to be intersectional in my politics without ever saying the word intersectional, a very important feminist concept established by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. In 1989, Crenshaw identified a long-standing problem in the legal system. Black women were not truly being seen. We were able to see black men, we are able to see black men and recognize the racism that they face were able to see women, particularly white women, and recognize the sexism that they face. But we were often unable to see black women and recognize the compounding effects of racism and sexism that we face. So Crenshaw used a simple analogy of a black woman at an intersection to help us better see her. She is both black and female and positioned precisely in the middle of the intersection, exactly where the roads overlapped and met, impacted both by her gender and her race. She does not experience her gender and race separately. She experiences her race and gender simultaneously. 
And many of us are positioned similarly, impacted not just by our gender and race, but our class, ability, sexuality, religion, and so many other facets of our identities and experiences. Intersectionality upholds our lived realities and recognizes how our identities complicate and create levels of systemic injustice and marginalization. Without this framing, we are in danger. We are in danger of squashing and reducing one another's experiences and erasing the specificity of our lived, unique experiences. I first stepped forward, as Lucky mentioned, um, publicly to share my experience six years ago in Marie Claire magazine. I was born um, in the 1980s in Honolulu, Hawaii, to a mother who was a teen mother, with two sisters who were teen mothers, and a father who struggled with addiction. I grew up the middle of five kids in communities plagued by poverty and low-resource schools, over-policing and drugs. I came of age seeing gay people on television, learning about the AIDS crisis, and witnessing firsthand the plight of my neighbors, low-income people of color from undocumented Filipino domestic workers and black men under heavy surveillance to indigenous Hawaiians displaced on their own land. If growing up black and native and poor wasn't enough, I also had my own identity struggles as a trans kid. As a young person, I struggled deeply and fought hard to be myself, reveal myself, express myself in a culture that mandates from the very beginning, before you're even here, that if you're born with certain body parts, you're not allowed to express who you truly are if that expression doesn't align with the, what those around you deem normal and within the binary. Growing up, I had a series of battles with my parents, from choosing to wear my hair long, to having both my ears pierced, to sitting in a corner quietly reading books instead of being outside with a football. As a young person, I was acutely aware and uncomfortable with the fact that I was different, and I tried my best to appease my parents and make them feel good about my existence and also my family and my peers by hiding deeper into myself and masking my truth. Then in the seventh grade, I met um, my best friend, Wendy, who would consider herself a goddess, but she's more of a queen. Um, and she, you know, I have to respect the way she self-identifies. Um, <laughs> she was a 12-year-old trans girl who had a green bob and wore short shorts with knee-high socks, and she pranced around our school as if she ruled it. Um, Wendy's fearlessness and her boldness to be fully herself, no matter the consequence, pushed me to proclaim what I secretly knew about myself all along, but I was so scared to say that I was a girl. Wendy and I became best friends. We'd stay up late talking about everything and nothing, and I had butterflies in my stomach for having found someone with whom I didn't have to explain anything to. She just knew me. And my friendship with Wendy, my friendship with her has taught me that authenticity and living my truth was the only possible pathway. And she encouraged me to no longer present in a way that made everyone else comfortable. Instead, she urged me to present in a way that made me comfortable. And in, so on my first day of high school, I strutted on campus in tight jeans, a cropped T-shirt, and my wild curls bouncing that I had learned to straighten, and reintroduced my, because of Beyonce. Um, and, <laughs> 
reintroduced myself as Janet to my classmates, and relaying this now, I marvel at my teenage self, that 15-year-old girl with the unwavering sense of self who never let anyone's perceptions of her make her doubt who she knew she was inside. And I believe, and I actually I know that that self-assuredness was the key to my survival, enabling me to transition through the halls of my high school, despite teachers who block the entrance to the girls' room, despite faculty members who called me by my birth name and the wrong pronouns, despite their intolerance and ignorance, I persevered. And I left high school with a scholarship to college, becoming the first in my family to even go to college. And I entered the University of Hawaii in 2001, weeks before September 11th. And my peers were deployed to Iraq In Afghanistan, and we later experienced the Great Recession, just as we took on tens of thousands in student loan debt. We began to broadcast our lives and our politics and our selfies on Facebook and Twitter. Hey, selfies are revolutionary too. <laughs> we became more connected and aware and engaged in social movements, from the election of the first black president to Arab Spring and Black Lives Matter. I belong to a generation that is far more connected, socially conscious, and aware and diverse. And I like to think of us as the most woke generation. And being a part of this generation is largely why I committed early on to telling stories that matter. As a student reporter in Hawaii, I spent much of undergrad asking people questions, listening to their stories, offering them space to tell their truth. I learned as a student reporter that we all want to be heard, and we all yearn to be seen for who we really are, no matter our path. This is a universal truth. Telling our stories allows us to connect with one another, but more importantly, it allows us to connect with ourselves. And I knew that telling stories was what I wanted to do with my life. So I moved to New York City in 2005 for graduate school without family resources or a backup plan. I borrowed $40,000 in student loan debt that I'm still paying off. So this engagement is really helping me. Thank you so much, Sydney <laughs> Opera House. And I got my master's at NYU. And in New York, after years of standing out, I made the decision to keep the fact that I was trans to myself. And it was liberating to be seen as another girl in the crowd, another 22-year-old just figuring out who she was. And it was the first time in my life when I was free to just be me, without people whispering about me, without my transness leading the way for me. And with that privilege of unmarked existence, the privilege of normal, I gained access, and I was let in. I learned about writing from our nation's best journalists. I got internships at magazines I had read in my bed growing up. I earned my master's and became an editor at People magazine. I swore with my curls and my cosmopolitans in New York City that I was the second coming of Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> and this was the dream. This was the American dream. I was someone who came from nothing, someone who made something out of nothing. I became someone, but I was also deeply fearful and anxious and afraid. About publicly claiming a part of my identity that was so heavily misunderstood and could lead me to further marginalization, I thought to myself at the time, why would anyone want to attach themselves publicly to a group of people who are told that they're confused, who are told that they're an abomination? 
who are legally mandated not to use public restrooms or to serve in the military, who in more than 30 states in the United States can still be legally fired and denied housing for being themselves, and who, like the hundreds of trans women around the globe killed annually, are being hunted down for being who they are. I felt and I learned and I believed that I was less than. I felt that maybe my voice wasn't worth hearing because I saw no one like me on my television screen, on my bookshelves, who was celebrated, who was applauded, who was centered. But eventually I came to a point where I realized at 26 that how people saw me had nothing to do with me. It had to do with them and their limitations, their prejudice, their own ignorance. And as I basked in my own personal success, I couldn't ignore the fact that my success and my experience was completely outside the norm for girls growing up like I did. I couldn't ignore the fact that there were girls and young women like myself who didn't have my privileges from the way that I present, the way that I look to my educational access, citizenship, medical access, and able-bodiedness. Therefore, they could not access the same resources that I had benefited from. Many of my sisters and siblings are grappling with homelessness, joblessness, a lack of access to health care and education, and these interconnected issues and this space of lack often pushes them to underground economies that make them even more vulnerable. These were the urgent, vital issues that pushed me to step forward with my own stories and begin challenging the way our stories are told. And I found such strength to join this movement through the work and words of writers who came before me, who spoke their truth, who didn't apologize for existing and taking up space in the world. Black women writers, black women writers saved my life. Zora Noor Hurston, and Maya Angelou, and Barbara Smith, and Toni Morrison, and Audre Lorde offered me refuge and reflection. Even today, I still turn to Audre Lorde's words, and she urged me, when I was so afraid, to transform my silence into language and action without erasing the complicatedness of visibility. She wrote, in the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear. But most of all, we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. For that visibility, which makes us most vulnerable, is that which also is the source of our greatest strength. Choosing to tell my story emboldened me, giving me visibility and voice, allowing me to help shift conversations, conversations about living at the intersections of gender, race, and class, conversations about how restrictive gender norms oppress us all, conversations about the importance of representation. Ultimately, I yearned to champion our freedoms to define and declare who we are. Trans women are women, trans men are men, and trans people are exactly who they say they are. That's not up for debate. Yeah, you can applaud to that. <laughs> Most important, I told my story because I yearned to tell the truth, to create the story that I didn't have growing up and to show girls growing up like I did that 
they are worthy and deserving of all the things this world has to offer. And I'm wholly committed to combating ignorance, prejudice, and stigma through storytelling on multiple platforms. I wrote my first memoir, Redefining Realness, in 2014, the first memoir written from the perspective of a young trans person. Three years later, I followed up my um, story with Surpassing Certainty, my latest book, which centered on the years in my life when I was not open about my transness. I've been able to share grilled cheese and tell my story to Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> who I know is a, apparently a great export here, a national treasure that has come here and has had her O on the bridge. Um, I've been able to create space for others in my community to tell their stories, specifically through my HBO documentary, um, The Trans List. And I've been able to interview luminaries from Maxine Waters and Laverne Cox to pop culture powerhouses like Nicki Minaj and problematic fave Kim Kardashian West. <laughs> and I've been able to address millions at the Women's March on Washington. I am so lucky, I'm so lucky to do what I do, but the great irony of my success is that it often deludes many into believing that my success is possible for all those growing up like I did. And the reality is, it is not yet. Just because I made it doesn't mean that others are able to do the same. Many trans people, specifically those from low-income communities of color, are invisibilized and ignored. We as a society deep down are afraid of difference, so we push those who are unlike us away from our scope of vision. We need to begin acknowledging that trans women are women, that black, brown, and native bodies matter, that trans girls and women of color are protection, are worthy of our protection and care. And I do this work now, walking in the footsteps of giants who came before me, who were beaten, jailed, and killed in pursuit of rights that have allowed me to stand on this stage. I follow the revolutionary work of my foremothers, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, who hustled the streets of New York City to take care of their own. Sylvia and Marsha helped ignite the Stonewall riots in 1969, fighting the police and the policing of their identities and lives. They were instrumental in the burgeoning LGBT movement. They raised their voices, they pounded the pavement, they yelled and roared for themselves and one another. They also refused to let anyone silence them, not even white, gay, and lesbian activists who tried to exclude them from the movement that they created. Our history as trans and queer people of color fighting against poverty, against policing, against brutality, against hunger, against racism, and misogyny and HIV AIDS is deep. We have deep roots in active resistance as demonstrated in the events at Stonewall, where it was gender nonconforming people and street youth and drag queens and trans folk of color like Sylvia and Marcia, who have and have always been on the front lines. And each space where I'm invited to speak, I give the stage over to trans activist and LGBT pioneer Sylvia Rivera. This is a video from 1973 at the Christopher Street Liberation Rally in New York City. It's a few years after Stonewall. Sylvia's only 22 years old, and she's bombarded the stage to speak. Quiet down. 
nothing. I've been trying to get up here all day for your gay brothers and your gay sisters in jail that write me every motherfucking week and ask for your help. And you all don't do a goddamn thing for them. Have you ever been beaten up and raped in jail? Now think about it. They've been beaten up and raped after they haven't spent much of their money in jail to get their cell phones and try to get their sex change. The women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women of the women's liberation. And they write star, not the women's group. They do not write women. They do not write men. They write star because we're trying to do something for them. I have been to jail. I have been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for them? No, you all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail and do not forget Bambi Lamore and Dora Marks, Kenny Messner, and other gay people that are in jail, come and see the people at Starhouse on 12th Street on 640 East 12th Street between B and C, apartment 14. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club. And that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Give me a kiss! Give me an A! Give me a Y! Give me a P! Mother of the movement, right? I love this video so much. Um, it's any time that I am feeling doubtful about what to say, whenever I'm feeling as if I'm going to try to like make my speeches or my remarks, specifically when I'm talking to white audiences, like more palatable. I just listen to Sylvia and I'm like, no, bitch. <laughs> just go in. 
Um, and so what I love so much about this video, specifically as a learning tool, right, is that she's entering a space that does not want her, does not want to hear from her, does not want her to exist. She's literally, before this even goes on, she's like fighting people and snatching the microphone because they did not want to slate, at the time, what they called drag queens or anyone that was gender nonconforming into the gay liberation kind of rally and march. And she goes, no, 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 no. We helped start this, right? And you want to put us on the back burner and tell us that we should just wait for our rights. And I think about how right now what she's doing at the end of that, actually, she then has them all chanting with her because they get read for filth, right, for all of their privilege and the ways in which they, try, they use their whiteness and their money and all this stuff to oppress trans folk of color and gender nonconforming people. Um, and I just love that she shares her story. She goes up to share her story and she's raging against her community, a community that she's gone to jail for, that she's fought the police for, that she's walked the front lines for. And she's yelling at them for caring only about the most privileged. She's unapologetic about her life as a trans Latina who has been incarcerated, who's engaged in sex work, who's been sexually assaulted. And what saddens me is that though in this current moment we have so much more visibility, so many more trans bodies to consume and stories to hear and tell and watch, not a lot has changed for my sisters and siblings. Often in spaces, specifically in feminist spaces, you know, where um, we center conversations about girls and women, my sisters and I are excluded. When well-meaning people say that they're fighting on behalf of or advocating for the protection of girls and women, they're usually talking about a very specific girl. That girl is usually not trans. She is usually perceived to be straight. She is usually respectable. She hasn't engaged in sex work. She is virtue. She is blonde. She is as close to whiteness as possible. If she checks these boxes, she's the one that people rally behind. And it's so rare for us to rally behind trans girls and women. We are among the most vulnerable and invisibilized populations. My sisters are grappling with homelessness and joblessness, a lack of access to healthcare and education, and these issues push them out of hostile homes and out of intolerant schools and into detention homes and prisons and deeper into poverty. And these interconnected issues also push them into underground economies like sex work, which is often the default method onto which black trans women earn the money to nurture themselves with food, with medicine, clothing, and shelter, basic resources that we collectively do not provide for them. This dangerous, stigmatized work makes them even more vulnerable to HIV. Trans women are among the most at-risk demographic, as well as the most likely to face medical discrimination. And trans women of color are more likely to be profiled, incarcerated, and targets of abuse and violence. These girls, my sisters, stand at the intersection of race, gender, and class on the margins of our society. And because women are not valued, because trans people are invalidated, and because people of color are exiled, trans women of color live at the intersection of pass her by and pay her no mind. And we have our work cut out for us. And creating the world we want for girls and women and for all of us starts 
with our own openness to embracing girls and women and people from all walks of life. Girls like Cece McDonald, a 24-year-old who survived a white supremacist and anti-racist assault on her body only to be prosecuted and jailed for daring to survive. Girls like China Gibson, a 31-year-old who was shot dead in the streets of her hometown in New Orleans, Louisiana in February. Girls like Elon Nettles, a 21-year-old who was beat to death in my own neighborhood in Harlem, just across the street from the police station. No one did anything for her in 2013. Girls like Erica King Thompson, a trans woman who is currently incarcerated in a men's facility by the state of New York only to be verbally, physically, and sexually abused by inmates and sergeants, in addition to being denied medical attention for her injuries and forced into solitary confinement. This is cruel and unusual punishment. These girls and countless others have been beaten and jailed, extinguished and exiled because they are girls and women, because they are black girls and women, because they are black girls and women who are trans. And as I relay all of these injustices, I have to acknowledge the resilience of my community. When you have never been centered, when you have been given nothing, when no one expects anything from you, you learn to cope, to create, to move, to organize, and to resist in deeply impactful ways. These are the people that I come from. This is the miracle of my community. And I think about the thousands of trans women choosing to live visibly despite threats and risk, some of whom have shared their stories through the hashtag Girls Like Us, which I established in 2012 to build community among trans women. I met some of my best friends through that hashtag. Or the hundreds of readers of my book who told their stories through my I Am Redefining Realness story-sharing campaign. But these stories will not save us alone. We have to be conscious, we have to remember, we have to never forget the interlaying, complicated nexus at which trans people of color exist. We must never forget that whole communities of low-income trans and LGBTQ plus people were fighting for their lives at Stonewall and continue to fight today. We must never forget that the legacy of survival and resistance is deep in our community and that it goes beyond the shallow soundbite of equality for all. We must be conscious and realize that queer and trans folk exist in joblessness and homelessness, that our siblings are still fighting HIV AIDS, that our sisters are banished to the darkness of street corners, that our people are still being hunted down and locked away, and that trans women of color are being killed globally. It's a state of emergency. And in the world that I see, trans girls, like all girls and young people, are protected and nurtured. They are included in conversations about violence against women and HIV prevention and reproductive rights. They have access to schools and women's colleges and restrooms. They have access to unbiased, knowledgeable, and affordable health care. They no longer fall in between the gaps of feminist, racial justice, and LGBT movements. They are centered. They are centered because they matter and they're here. They are centered because our own liberation lies in their well-being and survival. Each of us 
must fight for the creation of a world where we all have the right to define our identities, express ourselves without threat or fear, and make decisions regarding our lives and our bodies without political, medical, or religious interference. And we can only do this work together by realizing that our oppressions are not isolated and our freedom is linked to one another. We must be vigilant about being intentional, inclusive, and intersectional. We must center those who are underrepresented, who are often not heard, who are not in the rooms where decisions are made. We must center those most marginalized, those who are multiracial and trans, gender nonconforming and disabled, queer and undocumented, who have families behind bars and threatened by borders, who are native and indigenous. We do not center them solely for their benefit. We center the most marginalized because it's the only way we will ever get free. Tonight, I charge you to extend beyond yourself and include my sisters and siblings in your work. I charge you to show up for one another and to use your voice and your access to ignite change in your communities. I charge you to be courageous and conscious as we struggle together and struggle with one another. Thank you. Join me. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, well, eh? Thank you so much. Of course, thank you. Um, I'm going to start with saying aloha, Janet Mock. Aloha. So you're a native Hawaiian. I wore my favorite Hawaiian I shirt love for it. you today. It thank looks you. good. It's nice and bright. I'm a wannabe of visibility. High yeah. visibility. <laughs> there we go. Um, so I am a wannabe Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. My wife and I have spent a lot of time in Hawaii. Oh, really? Yeah. We're How actually, far is it from here? It's about eight hours, is that right? Oh, yeah. that's I might be close. making that up a little. Maybe it's Are you ten. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but it goes like that because you're so excited. Um, uh, one thing amongst many that really struck a chord with me about beautiful Hawaiian culture mm. is the practice of aloha. Mm -hmm. um, so the word aloha is used obviously as a greeting and a farewell and an expression of mm. love. Um, but I've learned that the, world, the word actually means a lot more. Aloha mm. is actually a way of life. Um, aloha holds within it all one needs to know to interact rightfully in the natural world. Mm, that's beautiful. The idea of aloha is that you are greeting the world with your, the intention to be your best self. Mm -hmm. And Janet, I think you are the absolute embodiment of aloha. Oh, thank you. So, is all we're going to do is just compliment me? I know. I'm, I'm just going to sit here and go, Janet, I'm a total fangirl. I'm totally the wrong person to do this. Um, and so we should start this right. My name is Lucky. My preferred gender pronouns are he and him. Um, so I think that's a great place to start. Um, Janet, what made the 27-year-old decide to come forward into visibility mm. and to quote yourself, to speak yourself into existence? What was the tipping point for you that mm. went, okay, now is the time to stand up? I mean, tell me about that. Yeah, I think it was a mix of a few things. One was boredom. Mm -hmm. I had... <laughs> You know, I just wanted to spice things up, you know, make it interesting. <laughs> um, I had been sitting in a cubicle for the past five years, mm -hmm. working um, at a magazine, which was an entertainment magazine about famous people. Mm. And I had spent my, a lot of my, a huge chunk of my 20s 
telling the stories of very famous people, and it's really easy to hide behind very famous people because mm. no one's interested in me. Mm. Um, and I think that it was really fun for the first couple of years, and after a while, I think I felt unfulfilled. And I knew that I had this story and these experiences that I hadn't even sat down to tell myself yet. And so at around like 25 years old, after a really bad breakup, I, you know, got really emo and like, you know, <laughs> listened to a lot of John Mayer and <laughs> went to movies by myself, started a blog. I was like, I was like really searching, you know, um, it was like my eat, pray, love in New York City. And I began to just sit with myself in the mornings and wake up a couple hours early before work to just sit with myself and journal. And my commitment was to just sit there and start telling myself my own stories. Mm. And so I started doing that, and then also simultaneously what was happening was that, at least in America, there were these, kind of like these things happen in trends, like story trends happen. I know as a journalist this happens all the time, like trans, this is something that America is talking about now, and therefore a lot of other people are talking about it. But in 2011, what was going on was that there were a lot of LGBT youth suicides and bullying. Um, the story of Tyler Clementi was one that was told nationally. It was on the cover of our magazine. And I thought that though I was, see I was seeing all these stories, but though we say LGBT, we often mean you know, cisgender, gay, and lesbian youth, right? Um, and I was noticing that there was no representation of what it looks like to be a young trans person. And I was thinking, oh, you know, it's kind of like that Toni Morrison thing where she says, um, if there's a story that you want to read and it hasn't been written, then you need to go write it. Yeah. And so that was what pushed me. So it was all of those factors. It was wanting to be, wanting um, to feel challenged, wanting to be useful, wanting to contribute, and also wanting to just tell the truth. I had for so long not told myself the truth or withheld that and held it so close. And I felt that I needed to kind of open up a little bit. For so many trans women of color, mm -hmm. the decision to become visible is, a, is, a, is at the risk of violence. Yeah. So and so I think that the number one piece of advice I would say to ensure that you are, you feel as protected and nurtured and that you're well-resourced. And when I say well-resourced, I'm not just talking about food, housing, shelter and all that stuff. I'm talking about ensuring that you have people around you, a gang of folk, your community who are there for you, who are affirming you, who are nurturing you, who will, you know, smack a bitch if things get wrong, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just make sure you have your people yeah. um, so that you feel well-armed in this world that is often trying to come for you. Um, and then I think at the, the next level of that is, I think that you, you start small. You start, it, that's how I started. I started just by sitting down with my journal and writing to myself. Mm -hmm. I was not thinking about an audience. I was not thinking about a book deal. I was not thinking about the public. I was just thinking about, I want to sit here and talk to myself. And that then made me feel safe enough to then share that with my partner, my best friend. Mm. And then they were like, there's something here. And I was like, yeah, there is, right? And then it was like, then I like created a book proposal. And then like, then it became big. But mm -hmm. at first it really just started with the act of telling myself the truth and that was enough. And also to not feel pressured in this moment of grand visibility that we're having with transness in, um, in particular, mm. to feel as if you owe anything to the world. Um, your existence alone, your walking through the streets every single day, um, in your black, in your Latina, mm. in your trans girl body is enough. That is activism alone. By taking up space and unapologetically living your truth, that is activism enough. Now, if you want to go to the next layer and contribute in a way that's public, mm. that puts your body on the line, that's a decision that you have to 
you know, know those risks of, of course. But, um, and of course, we, we want you there. But don't feel obligated in this moment to, to have to step up in Absolutely. that kind of way. There's different, there's other ways to step up as well. <laughs> Number one. Hi, um, Janet. My name is Kate, Kate Doak. Um, Kate, Twitter friend, yes. We've each other on Twitter quite a bit before. Um, I've worked in the media previously and also mm. with the um, National Program Safe Schools Coalition Australia. And with what you've been talking about um, so far tonight in regards to writing yourself into existence. Mm. Can you expand upon that and also the importance of um, uh, the concept of language itself, like um, mm. uh, how we describe ourselves um, uh, in this day and age and what impact that can have both on ourselves and also the movement going forward? Mm. I wholly um, believe in something that Bell Hooks wrote, which is that language is a place of struggle. I think that it's a starting place. I think that us being able to have labels and words and you know, um, language to be able to describe ourselves and our experience is a starting point, but it's also not everything, right? Um, I think that so often I, to position myself in a space, I'm often using words, right? But then there's a lot of words to describe me. <laughs> and so it's like not making sure that I'm not um, prescribing to just the one word that most people are interested in, which oftentimes when I'm invited into spaces, it's my transness. Mm. It's not my blackness. It's not me being Native Hawaiian. It's not being having grown up poor, having engaged in sex work as a teenager. So I have to make sure that I bring all of that language and all of that word, mm. words in to kind of complicate and add nuance and layers to the story I choose to tell about myself. And so I would, I always try to push other people to ensure that they do not just reduce themselves to one part mm. of their identity, that they bring all of the things there because people will do that already for you. Even if I say 20 things that I am, they're still just gonna say trans, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. like they will not, and so like it's interesting what, and so like a lot of that stuff has nothing to do with me. It has to do with what they feel is a priority to them about mm. my story that they think is important. Um, I feel like I kind of answered that question, but I think, maybe not. I think you did. Thank you for the question, Kate. Hi, Janet. Um, I've been following you for a long time now, so I know a bit about your work. But uh, I think last month or two months ago, I saw your interview at The Breakfast Club, which is mm. a a different space to talk about. <laughs> that was That's so well for it. <laughs> a different space to talk about trans rights and stuff and the backlash mm. of that, what the response of that, what happened the following day, I think, with uh, Little Duvel or something, uh, making fun about trans women, calling them men, etc. Mm. How do you then get the courage to return to similar spaces like that to mm. educate people about trans? Mm, mm. Yeah, so just for people who don't understand, you know, The Breakfast Club is a radio, a hip-hop radio show in New York City, um, and it was the last stop on my promo tour, <laughs> media tour for my mm -hmm. book, and I, it was an important space for me to be in because heavily it's a um, people of color space, mm. it's hip-hop community, um, and it has deep roots within black and Latino neighborhoods, and a lot of the women I talk about, a lot of my sisters, my community is black and Latino girls. And so I wanted to ensure that I came into that space and that I, you know, I did my meditation, I did my, you know, I had all my things ready before I went there, like anything that I go and do. Um, and so they asked a lot of questions. I knew it would be a lot of one-on-one. It's a space where there's not often trans or LGBT people mm. in that space. 
Um, and so I was prepared. And so I did that work. We did the interview. I moved on. I was like, it's done. And then they brought me into another conversation with some random person who I'd never heard of. Um, and they asked him a question about if a trans woman was with you and she didn't tell you that she was trans, what would you do? And they propped up my book and they said, what about her? And then he said something like, um, I would kill her, basically. Mm. And so it speaks to the layers, um, to the complicatedness of disclosure of um, trans women in partnership with cisgender men. Um, you know, trans women have, have always been desired, but it's always been shameful mm -hmm. and secret. Mm -hmm. They've been pushed to corners and darkness. Um, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the violence that we talk about around trans women of color is largely happening not through some random stranger on the street mm. that's throwing something at them, though that is a part of it, but oftentimes it's domestic, intimate partner violence mm. that then leads a lot of these partners as a part of their defense to say that she tricked me mm. when overwhelmingly they had already known they had previously had sex with this woman before and all these things, but it's that trans panic defense thing. And so a part of the work that I think was necessary in being in that space was knowing that now it, it, helped, um, it helped launch conversations around this that was deeply triggering, but also I think it also um, um, added a lot of necessary energy that needed to be said and put on in terms of this conversation around disclosure, trans womanhood, and, and dating cisgender. Men. But in terms of how I deal with the resistance of being in quote-unquote hostile or not as welcoming spaces, um, I prepare myself. It's a part of the work that I have to do if I want to challenge conversations. I can't just be in ones where folk are comfortable with my existence. And I make sure I take care of myself with my self-care, with my people, with my communities before I enter a space like that. Mm. But it's a part of the work. Thank you standing in the shadows, coming to the light. Coming to the light. Hi. Um, in terms of talking about people prescribing objectives and trying to control the conversation you're trying to tell, how do you stop from being exhausted of educating and redirecting mm -hmm. every conversation well, happening about you? <laughs> <laughs> no answers there. I'm just kidding. Keep going. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Like, how, how do you mm. cope with people trying to control the conversation that you're wanting to tell and the stories mm. that you're trying to tell? <sighs> um, I think it's, I think it's even, um, of course, there's a self-care piece before you even go into a space like that. I think the next layer of that is being really clear about what you know to be the truth and what you know to be right. And it, for me, at least, that helps me to ensure that I'm not wavering or... And also then making sure that I'm listening in that space as well and seeing what people are really trying to ask me or what they're really trying to say and using their own words and their own limitations and their own um, gaps in understanding and their ignorance as a tool to teach them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, this labor that I think that a lot of marginalized people have to kind of do you know, um, don't have to do, but it, that a lot of us choose to do in, in terms of the movement work. Um, but in terms of being exhausted, I think that it's a, you know, I leave any space where I'm having to talk about my life or my communities and try to get people to, you know, become conscious partners. I leave empty and depleted. And you have to make sure that when you leave empty and depleted that you go to spaces where no one expects for you to show up, except that you showing empty and depleted is more than enough, and they love you, and they re-energize you. And so for me, that's kind of the cycle. It's like I take care of myself, I go and do the work, I, you know, I'm 
also being media trained helps too if you're doing media work around that kind of stuff too, which is you can get trained around that stuff. But um, yeah. Um, I think we have another from this Hi, number Janet. one. I'm an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. I just want to say welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, um, I read your book, um, The Existence One, the one before this one, and I really enjoyed your book. And, but I wanted to ask you, when, in, when you were talking, you were talking about um, intersectionality mm. and you said um, that um, women of colour and especially trans women of colour mm. are, are at that, that border of intersectionality and, and, you, and you can't move because of, of the mm. political determinants and the social determinants that impact on, our, impact on our lives. And as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, sexuality and gender diverse woman, I know that intersectionality. Mm. But I guess how did you move from that and, and go into your degrees and, and become, then move from your, you did law, didn't you? And then come into a writer, because mm. it's powerful. I don't know how, I think a lot of it was, some of it was luck. <laughs> I think I got lucky, you know, it's never, um, it's always heavy, see, when I start thinking about this, I get a little like, I lose my words because it's also very clear to me that the life expectancy for trans women of color specifically is 30. That me, as a 34-year-old, I'm considered an elder in my community. Um, and so for me, this work, the work that I do, the speaking that I do, is all in the hopes of instilling some kind of hope for that girl that I was, a curly-haired, black and native Hawaiian trans girl who was 12 years old, who didn't know that there was a possibility to dream, to live, to thrive and move beyond survival. I think that so for many years in my life, I was just surviving and I made compromises in order to navigate space, in order to get to where I needed to go, to get to the next spot. And I think also too, what also helped me was finding those semblances of light, um, whether that's through friendships, like my best friend, Wendy, whether that's through a guidance counselor in my high school, Allison, Colby, who advocated for me when I didn't have any energy or the resources as a 14-year-old trans girl to advocate for myself. Um, and so I think that sometimes there is a lot of darkness, but I think that at certain times there's light that comes in, whether that's resources or friendships that help you get to the next space that you have to get to. But I wholly believe in something that Barbara Smith says, um, who's a black feminist um, revolutionary. She says that we need stories we need more stories so that we can know that, number one, we're not alone, that we're not the first to have been there before, that someone else has made it out, um, and then the next layer so that those stories then help us better live and better dream and dream even bigger. And so the only reason why I do that work is largely because of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I also, there was, I got a little, someone's, Cass's birthday is today? Someone named Cass? No? Was that, a, did someone make that up? Okay, someone's girlfriend told me to say happy birthday to them. So happy if it's your birthday Cass. in the audience and you're seeing this. Um, I think this will be our last question. Hi, Ms. Janet. Hi, boo-boo. I'm Callie. <laughs> um, as a trans woman, sometimes stepping into a cisgender space and having conversations with strangers, as soon as they discover your transness or whatever, 
the focus automatically tends to shift to your body parts. Mm. So my question would be, how do you act artfully avoid the question or avoid <laughs> answering that question? How do you negate that one? <laughs> Well, some days I am rude and abrasive because that's just where I'm at that day. So it's, it's completely fine to be rude and abrasive um, if that's where you're at that day. If that's your truth, live your truth. Um, but I think most times it's oftentimes you're having to navigate around that. I still, people think that I don't still have to deal with that. You know, when I go to a dinner party and my work is not the center and no one knows who I am or something at a friend's house. Um, and I, people ask like, what do you do for a living? You know, and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I'm a writer. And I'm, oh, what do you write? You know, I'm like, I write articles and books. Oh, what are your books are about? Because I'm, because, yeah, I'm not, right. because I'm not gonna lie, I'm like, well, you know, about, you know, growing up as a trans girl. Oh my God, you're trans? I would have never known. <laughs> Amen, oh. honey. <laughs> oh my God, I would have never known. When did you transition? Did you go all the way? Da, da, da. You know, just like, I'm like, then you become an object that they're fascinated with. And I'm just like, there is Google for you. Um, that's, a, that's something you're interested in. Like, I'm not, you know, I've written books about it, you know. So sometimes I'm really like, I can be like cheeky with it, um, which helps. I think humor helps. I think sometimes also using, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is using, you know, flipping the script on them. And I try to use it as a teaching moment. Whereas, you know, like, it's like, you know, if you're asking me if I've had surgery, I say, Did, have you had any surgeries? <laughs> you know, like, trying to, and so then people kind of realize, like, how ridiculous they're being. Um, and most often, I think it also depends, my layer, my levels of tolerance and graciousness um, come from how deeply am I invested in this relationship going forward anyway. So if it's just someone you're like, passing by who's asking these questions, it's kind of like none of your business. But if it's someone that you really want to like have a relationship with and be friends with, then you can kind of work that through with them. And you can figure out what your level of comfort is. But you can just say, you know, historically trans people are always reduced to their bodies. So I prefer not to answer those questions, but Google has pictures and <laughs> words and um, stories and videos for you to engage with. If you want to learn, you want to learn more about, you know, sexual reassignment surgery, top surgery, da da da. It's all there for you. Thank you, Miss Jen. Thank you. <laughs> well, Janet Mark, you are an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing your strength and your vulnerability, and thank you for your visibility. Folks, please welcome, or thank, rather, the wonderful Janet thank Mock. You. Thank you. The power of the written word is not lost on us here in Talks and Ideas. Thanks to the extremely gracious Janet for rounding out our Antidote series of Ideas at the House with that uplifting talk. On the podcast next week, one of our culinary heroes returns. It's Nigella Lawson, celebrating home cooking with her latest book, At My Table. Until then, podcast listeners.